This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Here you go. Here you go. The Nationals win the pennant. The Nationals win the pennant. Oh my God, the Nationals win the pennant. Welcome to Nothing Personal with David Sampson. It is October 16th, 2019. And for the first time since 1933, we can say there will be a World Series game in Washington, D.C. How they did it and the convincing fashion in which they did it was staggering. For those of you who tuned into the game last night, you saw what you couldn't believe you saw That's right. It was over. O-V-E-R in the first inning. Seven runs. Dakota Hudson could not get an out for the Cardinals. Now you're saying that was your pick of the day yesterday? Yes, it was. How is it possible that the Cardinals could not show up? Defensive blunders, offensive complete inability to get hits, to score runs. Then they made the game close seven to four, but it did not matter the Nationals were destined. They definitely seem like the Marlins team of 03 that I was a part of, destined to win a World Series. They're going to have to get maybe past those Yankees that we had to get past, or maybe it will be the Astros. Maybe that'll be my wait to see. But what I loved about yesterday was seeing those fans delivering a pennant to a city I can't explain it. For those of you in cities where there's not a lot of winning, and there's a lot of cities out there that would love the history of the Marlins, that would love the history now of the Nationals. For example, in Seattle, for those of you listening in Seattle, you've never been to a World Series. But if the Los Angeles Dodgers, you haven't won a World Series out there in California since 1988. But look at what these Nationals did. They came together as a team. They were 12 games under, and they came back to win the pennant. In 2003, the Marlins were 10 games under, and they came back to win the pennant. What does it take to actually accomplish that? The first thing is it requires patience. So therefore, that's right, it is a miracle that we actually won this ring because I had no patience back in 2003. We were firing managers. We were getting rid of players. We were adding players. We couldn't keep anything straight. We'd lose a few games in a row. Total panic would set in. But the key to success, what the Nationals did, is they exhibited great patience. Number one, they did not fire their manager. Number two, they figured out a way to improve their team by picking up a really good bench guy named the Baby Shark. If you don't know it, check him out. Baby Shark, he doesn't play para, right? But what he does, when he does get a chance, he got a hit, but that was just sort of like a like the 12th guy in a basketball team who gets put in when you have uh, a big lead or you're down by 30 and then the whole crowd cheers like crazy. Uh, the Knicks had a player like that when I was growing up named Eddie Lee Wilkins and Ken Bannister, Ken the Animal Bannister. We'd all root for him to get in the game. And then it turned into Herb Williams. So there's always that player and great on the bench, great for morale, and you need that and the Nationals have it. And what I loved watching this team is they've got a mix of veterans who are being paid quite a lot of money Take a look at Patrick Corbin, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, and uh, Anthony Rendon. And then you've got young guys who are really good. Trey Turner, their shortstop, leadoff hitter. They just, they're built to win. 
But still, after all that, my favorite part was Ted Lerner. I'm going to tell you about Ted Lerner because you may not know his name. He's 94 years young, turned it yesterday. His birthday present was a pennant for the team that he has owned for over 10 years. He took the Washington Nationals and he got the team. They used to be the Expos. You may know that. How did the Expos get to Washington? You're welcome, everyone in Montreal listening, and you're welcome, everyone in Washington listening. I was a part of that, bringing the Expos to Washington, although I had already escaped to Florida. But Ted Lerner bought the team in a very contentious auction-like setting with MLB, and he thought, and he's been close, I've been close with him for a long time, had a lot of family talks with him about him. He's this patriarch of this large family. His son uh, works for the team, his son-in-law, uh, another son-in-law, a daughter. It's very much a family business. They're in real estate, always criticized because everyone thought they weren't spending enough money, which they were. Uh, they just couldn't put it together properly. And then they fired Dusty Baker and got some pressure for that, but not for me. That was a good firing. And then Dave Martinez gets brought in and he actually ends up being the perfect manager for a team like this. And Ted Lerner's on stage, and he looks at the fans and says, this is for you. Well, Ted, I want to say, this is for you. You are a really top-flight mensch. M-E-N-S-C-H. Yiddish. You're going to hear it on this podcast from time to time. Not going to shy away from it. So what did I think about as I'm watching Ted Lerner and thinking about him celebrating? I'm thinking about, of course, you always internalize it, the time that I got to celebrate winning the pennant and the things that went on in Chicago. Uh, I'm not going to lose listeners, Coca, in Chicago by telling this story, but I will say that maybe we'll gain a few because we clinched the pennant in Chicago and we did not get to do a celebration on the field the way they do now when a road team wins, you still do something on the field because we were like in danger. When we won game six the night before the Steve Bartman game, we actually were on the team bus going back to the hotel and fans surrounded the bus and they were shaking it. And I was on the bus and there were wives on the bus and families on the bus and players on the bus. And we actually thought it was going to tip. These Chicago fans were out of their minds, very passionate, however misguided it may be, but we were scared. So after game seven, uh, we, we had to go not on the field. We had to celebrate in the clubhouse and the old Wrigley clubhouse is tiny before it got redone by the owners, the Ricketts family. And so we were all celebrating no goggles back then. I think goggles are for wussies. You want the sting in your eye, the burn. That's what the whole purpose of a champagne celebration is. So we get the trophy handed to us by the head of the national league, a guy named Bill Giles at that time. And I kid you not. Five minutes into the celebration, we're passing it around, and it broke. We broke the National League Championship trophy. We we snapped it. It came with, like, wooden pillars, and they snapped off, and there were representatives of MLB, commissioner's office, who were in the clubhouse sort of monitoring our celebration, and I realized that we're going to have to pay for a new trophy. And I thought it was ridiculous because you don't get to keep that trophy. You get to keep a World Series trophy, but not the pennant trophy. And I said, how could you have a trophy that's so easy to bend and break? How are we the first people to do it? And so we ended up having to get a new trophy, which we didn't get to keep. But we passed it around, and we were all noticing that it was broken. But now they have a trophy where you, Steven Strasburg actually drank beer out of the trophy. Um, that's a little bit of a copy of the Stanley Cup, but I'm okay with that. But there's so many different ways to celebrate. 
and there's so many things going on with the Nats right now. We're gonna get to talk about them for the next week as they prepare for the World Series. The front office is very busy now thinking about the World Series and roster construction, how to keep the players loose for the next week, but keep them sort of hyped up with adrenaline and get them sort of into a sweat so they don't get rusty. In Washington, they're dealing with politicians and ticket requests and all the little things that come up that maybe you're not thinking about are all majorly in the minds of the Nationals' front office. The players, what we told our players in 03, is empty your minds. Let the traveling secretary take care of the ticket requests. We will take care of all logistics. Try to take away all of the distraction. Because unlike a Super Bowl, where it's one game and then the distraction's over, but there's a week or two lead up to it, in the World Series, it's a week lead up to it now, and then it's every day for potentially seven out of nine days. So there's a lot, lot to do for the Nationals front office, and I'm gonna give you insight into that as we head into the World Series, which begins next Tuesday, October 22nd. But at least in Florida, we had one thing here. We didn't have a pennant, no. We didn't have this, oh, we do have the Super Bowl, but not with the Dolphins in it, but we do have the NFL owners meetings. That was, always was a big treat for MLB and NFL when owners meetings are in Florida because they're in Florida plenty of times. Who wouldn't want to be in Florida? A, half the owners have homes, second homes here, where I'm, I'm coming to you from Fort Lauderdale, studios at CBS. And two, it's nice here this time of year. So it's not like we have to beg people and beg owners to come. So Roger Goodell is here in, in conducting owners meetings, and I don't. I gotta teach you and tell you, please listen, what he said today, it's totally insane. Roger, let me ask you a question. When you actually meet the media today, and you say, I don't really see any teams tanking, and I think our draft works perfectly, we don't need a lottery. I'm just curious, do you know from what city you are saying that line? We are in the midst of tank heaven. Tanking for Tua. We just went for two and missed on purpose. And you're telling me there's no tanking? And then you say, we're giving some consideration to a 17-game season. What you really meant to say is that we're waiting to see what the extra national TV money can be and what the increase in overall revenue will be before we bring it to the union and ask them for an extra game. And then you mention that the officiating has been overwhelmingly positive and just fine. Roger, please. In the NFL, one of the biggest scandals, if you will, has been the officiating. And this has been going on not just for a week or a month. This has been going on for seasons. Are you aware that in New Orleans last year at the championship game, they were thinking about legal action? as in filing a lawsuit over the missed pass interference call, and now you've gone the other way where, frankly, I could potentially be a cornerback in the NFL at 5'5", 132 soaking wet because I'm just as effective. I'm gonna tackle the offensive player before the ball comes anyway. That's what they're doing. They're getting flagged for it. If we wanna call it the NHL, then we should just change the name. And I don't mean National Hockey, Roger. No hands. You're having issues with hands to the face, but they're really to the shoulder pads. You're having issues on pass interference. And you're meeting the media and saying everything's coming up roses. 
You're singing the wrong song, Roger, and I think you've got to take a look because the NFL, the ratings are up. There's a ton of positive things going on, but in order to maintain this positivity and this trajectory, be honest with your fan base. Don't leave it to me to translate, although I'm happy to have a job, but you could talk to your fan base through the camera and tell them what you're doing to make the game better. But of course, it's always about the money. Well, there's a lot of other things that are about the money going on in the NFL, and I didn't hear Roger Goodell mention this, but he should have, because it's a major problem. How is it possible that you can be the cornerback for a team, walk in to your GM's office, and say that you wanna be the cornerback for another team. And then you get the owner to go public saying, not only do I not believe we're gonna trade Jalen Ramsey, but we're gonna play him. Well, that didn't work out, did it? Because he didn't play, and then he did get traded. That was one of the great wait to sees, and we waited and we saw, and what we are now in the midst of is a player revolt. Players are demanding trades across all sports, and they are getting rewarded for that. I want to take you inside how this exactly goes down. Just take Jalen Ramsey, unhappy with his contractual status, makes a public issue of it, trying to get his fans on his side. Of course, he has no PR advisors, because if he did, they would tell him that millionaires or billionaires trying to convince fans who are hardworking, middle-class, incredibly accomplished fans who are emotionally attached to your team that they should feel sorry for you because you're at one million instead of two million or five million instead of 10 million or 20 million instead of 50 million, you might as well be talking to the hand because the ears are shutting down. So the days of appealing to your fans through social media or through stunts, those are over. So Jalen Ramsey says, you know what? I'm actually gonna walk in and tell my GM I wanna trade. Why does the GM take that meeting? I wouldn't let my GM take that meeting. I don't care what you want, Jalen. You're not allowed to tell me how to build my team. You're not gonna force me into trading you to get back two picks from the Rams? What am I, collecting picks? It sounds like a baseball team trying to collect draft choices or a football team collecting first round picks. I'm gonna trade a guy, let's say Minka Fitzpatrick. I'm gonna trade him to get a first round pick from Pittsburgh, top 10 maybe, top five, top 15, and he's gonna be better than Minka? When I drafted Minka, and he was the number one guy from, was it Alabama, Coca? Is that where I remember him from? And he was supposed to come in and actually be the beginning of the new Dolphins? I just don't understand why we would give players this amount of power. The collective bargaining agreement does a good enough job of evening the playing field. Why give players extra rights? The players don't give the owners extra rights. When we do one thing that could be in violation of the agreement with the union, we get called out immediately. Yet when players do one thing that would violate the agreement, they're allowed to do it. What's the subtle point here? <clears throat> they're only allowed to do it because owners let them do it. If owners actually stood their ground, then players could cry until the cows jump over the moon and Jalen Ramsey would be sitting home watching football every Sunday like I do. 
Or, better yet, he'd be suited up and trying to win games for the team that paid him and drafted him. But instead, we gave him the power. And in my opinion, that better switch. Because if it doesn't, where does it end? Why exactly would a player stop at a trade demand? Why not just stop in the middle of a game? Why not stop at the one-yard line? Why not drop a pass? I'm not saying the players throw games. What I am saying is, where does it end? And slippery slope in business is the most common principle. Page one of the economics playbook, the slippery slope theory. If you start giving an inch, people take a foot. Take a look in your own lives and see if that's the truth, because I have found that to be the case. So do I come off as a bit hard edge? Of course I do. That's purposeful, because you have to let people know where you stand and what the boundaries are. Because if boundaries are basically flexible, then you're running a trampoline company. And the problem with running a trampoline company is if you don't pad the ceiling, you crack your head open. And that's what's happening in the NFL and also in MLB right now. Some other news uh, going on in MLB was pretty great, came out today. The most shocking development of the offseason is that Joe Madden agreed to a three-year deal to manage the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Now, hold your breath, uh, because for those of you who don't know who Joe Madden is, thank you for listening. He managed the Chicago Cubs to the World Series in 2016, and he managed the Tampa Bay Devil Rays then, maybe the Rays, in 2008 to the World Series. So he is this sort of grandfatherly, patriarchal man who comes in and does great things. He wasn't great enough to stay with the Cubs because they were ready to move on, because once you win a World Series, it's hard to repeat. But the Angels saw that he was available, and poor Brad Ausmus. You know who Brad Ausmus is, right? He was the manager of the Angels, who the minute Madden got fired by the Cubs, got fired by the Angels. So here's the equivalent. You're at the school dance. You're super excited to be with the person you're with, and you're dancing, and all of a sudden your partner looks over and sees a little argument going on between another couple. Just a little argument, a little something, something. And your partner leaves you in the middle of the cha-cha and goes and gets someone else to dance with. And you're standing there looking at the sky, trying to squirrel your way to the fruit punch that you pray is laced. That's what Brad Osmus was forced to do while being cast aside by Artie Moreno. Who's the beneficiary of that? It was Joe Madden in a deal that was done the minute he was gone from the Cubs. Even before Osmus was fired and paid his severance, Madden had a deal in place with the Angels. They're gonna tell you no deal was in place, and you're gonna hear everyone in the media say, the Angels went through a managerial process. They interviewed several qualified candidates. Here's how that works. Absolutely not. They spent an hour and a half of the Eagles' wasted time with every one of the other candidates to say they did. I understand that's a rule in baseball. I understand how to follow the rule. You've got to submit a list of managerial candidates to the commissioner's office. They approve it. There have to be minorities on the list. But if you know who you're going to hire, you've got to go through with those minority interviews or else you get fined and in trouble. So teams do that. But guess what? The deal was done with Madden. Will Madden make the difference in LA? No, he won't. You still have a GM, Billy Epler, who can't figure out the right players to sign, wasting money left and right. Best player in baseball, Mike Trout, number 27. If you've never seen him play, hurry up and see him. You only have 12 years and 426 million opportunities to see him play again. 
but don't go to LA in October because you're definitely not gonna find a game. So Joe Madden will not be the savior that people think he is. I'm happy for him. He deserves to manage again. I'm surprised he accepted so little money given the taxes in California, but so he did. And what he's going into in LA is not an optimal situation. You may have heard that there was a tragedy this season in Los Angeles when a very good pitcher named Tyler Skaggs was found dead in his hotel room uh, during the season. And uh, they said no foul play. It turns out there was no foul play other than his own foul play. He uh, died of an overdose choking on his own vomit. And then it came out that uh, he had opioids in his system. And then it came out that the Angels employees gave the opioids to Tyler Skaggs. Then it came out that the Angels said, no, we didn't. And then it came out that the commissioner said they better not have. And then it came out that they did and they're being investigated and they're gonna be fined and they are in deep trouble. Let me tell you the story. We have a clubhouse and in the clubhouse you've got trainers, you have doctors, you have masseuses, you've got people who clean every article of clothing and fold it very nicely, you've got chefs, you've got nutritionists, you, everything you need to succeed at the major league level in those clubhouses. Here's what you don't have. You don't have amphetamines, you don't have opioids, you don't have marijuana, you don't have cocaine, you don't have any drugs of that nature. So if players are gonna do those drugs, they're gonna have to do them outside the clubhouse. However, if you start taking drugs, let's say PEDs, outside the clubhouse, you're gonna get tested and you're gonna test positive. How does it work? Every time a game ends, there's a man who's standing at the end of the clubhouse tunnel as you go into your clubhouse after the game. He looks at you and says, it's your turn to pee. The player has to go directly to the bathroom without passing go. In uniform, no going to the locker, no going to the kitchen, and no going anywhere alone. You go immediately to the bathroom and you have to go pee pee in front of the man watching. That is how you get drug tested in Major League Baseball. Obviously, you're protecting against someone using fake urine like Lawrence Taylor did. Can you imagine Lawrence Taylor used fake urine and still tested positive after he admittedly said, I actually chose the urine of a guy who was also doing drugs? That is just unlucky or stupid, probably 50-50. So in this clubhouse, you have everything you could ever want, but what we tell our players is don't take anything from anyone outside of the clubhouse. If you want supplements, we'll give them to you and they'll be certified as compliant with the drug policy treatment. You wanna do illicit drugs? Don't because we're testing and if you test positive, you're gonna get suspended. What I never saw in my 18 year career, and I saw a lot, never saw opioid use because opioids actually don't help you perform. They're like the anti-PEDs. But it turns out that Tyler Skaggs was getting opioids from someone in the PR department. People in the PR department are allowed into the clubhouse. The only people allowed in the clubhouse are actually those who get certified by Major League Baseball. You actually fill out a list and an application to baseball, they do a background check, and you are then approved to enter into the clubhouse. So there's no, back when I first got into baseball, if you, if you had a heart rate, you were allowed in the clubhouse. But they've totally changed that. You have to, you have to be on a list, you have to be credentialed, and Major League Baseball keeps track. But if you're in the PR department, that's your job. 
You're setting up interviews for the players post-game and pre-game. You're sending the players on to their appearances off-site or on-site. So you have this employee. His name was Eric Kay. No relation to any other Eric Kay who I've ever met. So I've never met this Eric Kay. And he was supplying Tyler Skaggs with opioids and doing them himself. Opioids like oxycodone. These are things that if you snort them or if you take them, you become addicted to them. And if you become addicted to them, you are liable to actually overdose from them. So instead of getting a player help for his addiction, actually the angels were feeding the addiction. That's the problem that Joe Madden's walking into. An organization that whether it's the PR guy or the manager or the clubhouse guy or a fellow pitcher, somebody's supplying illegal drugs to someone else and they're all using them together. This is not a good situation because the Skaggs family is going to sue the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim and they're gonna win. And Artie Moreno, the owner, is gonna have to write a check with mucho zeros. And that dinero could have gone to, let's say, Garrett Cole. Let's say Mike Moustakis. Let's say Marcelo Zuna. Let's say anybody. But it's gonna go to the Skaggs family. I'm not saying if that's right or wrong. I'm saying it's right because there was a breach of trust and a breach of care. And these are serious allegations, and MLB is investigating. They have to investigate, because if by chance this is a problem throughout baseball and throughout other sports, and that's what it is really in this world, where we've got ages 20 to 29, that's who's using opioids. It has nothing to do with performance-enhancing drugs. If this is a problem, we better deal with it because this goes beyond athletics and this goes to saving lives. So Joe Madden is not exactly walking into perfection. So what do you do when you don't wanna be in a perfect place or an imperfect place? We talked about it before. You could ask for a trade or one better. Michael Bennett of the Patriots, I, I hope you saw this yesterday, although if you didn't, you're hearing it right now. Michael Bennett plays for the New England Patriots. Yes, the same Patriots, the one with all the rings, right? Tom Brady, Giselle, been around forever. Bill Belichick, Deflategate, Robert Kraft, right? The Orchid Spa, the whole package. He walks in, Michael Bennett. This guy's fine, good, but he wasn't playing. He was playing 20% of the snaps, 10% of the snaps, and he wanted to be playing 60% of the snaps, 70% of the snaps. He walks into his coach, not the head coach, his coach, because you would never do that to Bill Belichick, walks in and says, hey, um, I need to play more. And the coach said, yeah, just play when we call your number. He said, no, no, I want to play more. And the coach said, no, no, when we're ready, we'll let you know. And apparently it escalated from there. So guess what happened to Michael Bennett? He was suspended for one game. This is the catch-all. Conduct detrimental to the team. That could mean anything from a fist fight with a teammate, a shoving match with your coach. It could mean screaming at the top of your lungs to your coach. It could mean emptying the locker of your coach and throwing stuff all over. I've seen that before. I've seen it all before. So Bennett is suspended because he didn't like the amount of playing time he got. So if the Patriots suspend him for a game and then the Patriots say conduct detrimental and then it went sideways because Bennett, and I have a great quote, it was a philosophical disagreement, is what Bennett said. So my guess is that Michael Bennett played the part of Aristotle, Belichick was Plato, and then the coach was Immanuel Kant. And they were having a discussion amongst the three of them about what's real and what's not. 
as it relates to football and play calling, and whether or not we live in a world that we see or a world that we're simply a part of. And then when they couldn't come to an agreement on what kind of football world they lived in, they decided that he should be suspended. And they agreed to have a philosophical disagreement. Really, Michael? That's what you're going with? That's not all the news in football. Got a very heavy football show today because I just, I couldn't stay away from these stories. Uh, those of us in Miami remember a, a quarterback. His name was, uh, Ryan. Ryan Fitzpatrick, we have now. And Ryan Tannehill, we had. He was our quarterback of the present and the past and the future. And then he was gone because we were bad. And then he was traded. Then he was a backup. And now it comes out that he is becoming the starter for the Tennessee Titans. And in this league, if you're a backup, you're eventually going to be named a starter because most starters either get hurt, they get concussed, or they get stinky. So the backups are getting more play than they used to when I was watching football with, with the Joe Montanas of the world and the Roger Staubachs. Anyone remember Danny White? Coco, was Danny White the backup to Roger Staubach? I have some recollection. Maybe it was the backup to Troy Aikman and Dan and Roger Staubach. Any case, backups, who's heard of them? Uh, so... Ryan Tannehill is no longer the backup. He's actually the starting quarterback for the Tennessee Titans. So the Dolphins front office is looking at this and saying, my God, we're tanking for Tua. We can't win a game. We were really hoping that maybe we could be the team to ourselves play in a Super Bowl, first time ever. Miami's hosting the Super Bowl and the team hosting would play in it. That's the dream three years ago. That's what they were planning for. When they saw it wasn't gonna happen, they started the tank for Tua. So they get rid of Tannehill. They bring in Ryan Fitzpatrick, who is basically a journeyman quarterback. He's had moments of greatness and moments of absolute horrificness. And they start him for a game or two. He can't get it done. They bring in Josh Rose and he can't get it done. No one can get it done because of the team they built around the Dolphins. So the Dolphins now look at Ryan Tannehill as a starting quarterback in the NFL and say, wow, Maybe we would have been better off. Maybe we would have pissed off our fans just a little bit less if we had a chance of being competitive and just pretend that we would try to win or at least come out and admit what we're doing and not have your coach, Brian Flores, come out and say, hey, we're a good team. We're a good team. We're just not playing well. We're gonna fix some stuff. So the moral of the story is that when you trade players, the front office looks at Ryan Tannehill and they look sort of and they say, I hope he stinks for Tennessee. But what front office people say in public and to the fans is they're rooting for players they've traded. I did it all the time. Of course I'm rooting for Miguel Cabrera to play well in the Tigers after we traded him. Or for Mike Lowell, great guy to play well and win an MVP for the Red Sox in the World Series. No, I'm not. That makes me look bad. I would keep a spreadsheet actually of every single player who I traded. And I'm sorry that there are so many fewer trees in the forest. Uh, I'm not really a computer guy, so I would keep it on paper. And I followed every single one of those players. And each one of them, I would know, did they go 0 for 4 during a specific game? What they were hitting for the season? How many home runs did they have? Did they get released? Are they now a dentist and out of baseball? Did they have to go back to college? Every executive cares about players they've traded away or let go. You think the Minnesota Twins didn't follow David Ortiz and his career after non-tendering him and watching him become a superstar Hall of Famer? with the Boston Red Sox, we all say the same thing because executive training says that that's what you say. You say, no, I've moved on. It's like selling a stock. You sell a stock and you walk away. No. 
No. I'm trying to think. Wait, I'm, wait for it. There may be one executive who didn't ever look back. Um, no, there's not. We all do. So every time you think that one of your players, when you're a fan of another player and your team trades him and you're following him and you think that we're not paying attention and we tweet that we're not paying attention, trust me, we are paying attention. And you know who I hope is paying attention to this podcast right now is Billy Corbin, my friend Billy Corbin. You know Billy, Mr. 305, Cocaine Cowboys, the square grouper, and I don't mean the fish. You know what a square grouper is? For those of you not in Florida, yeah, it's a big pile of weed that floats in the ocean when they're about to be taken by the Coast Guard and they drop it off or out of a plane and then it gets recovered later. A square grouper. Get it because groupers are fish. So Billy Corbin did a movie called Screwball. And Billy Corbin is a very talented director. The only thing that he is, he's an activist here in Miami. Uh, he's a good follow on Twitter. If you like cynicism, anger, frustration, and absolutely zero accountability, then Billy Corbin is your guy. However, he is an amazing movie maker. And Screwball is about the steroid problem in Miami and the investigation into steroids with Alex Rodriguez, who, as it turns out, he has his second career now as the analyst for ESPN and Fox in the studio. He somehow has rekindled his career. Being Jennifer Lopez's fiance has not hurt. And you're going to tell me that that wasn't calculated. Believe you me, completely calculated. And that's fine. I'm very happy for all of them. May they live happily ever after. If I were you, I'd keep the receipt for the wedding gift. So, Billy Corbin, screwball. The reason why you should see it is he does something that I've never seen in the movies. He employed kids to play the part of Alex Rodriguez and the other players and all the MLB officials, including Rob Mann from the commissioner, every one of the investigators, all of the people who basically turned state's evidence and helped MLB do its investigation. And what I liked about the movie and this is straight Billy Corbin, is he found a way to take an issue that was very complicated and interesting to only a very small niche of people who care about steroids and sports, and he made it available to everyone to enjoy. So when you get a chance, go on Netflix and watch Screwball, but make sure you watch all the way to the end, because the way he ties the story up is brilliant. So Billy, I don't compliment you a lot because I find your takes to be generally disheartening and your love of me to be completely non-existent. But that said, I have great respect for you as a movie maker. And maybe one day we will have an opportunity to make a movie, just the two of us. I know you called me about it. Um, I hope you admit that, that you actually texted me off camera where you didn't say F you, right? And you weren't saying anything mean and neither was I. But we don't want to let people know that we're friends off camera. But the truth is that we talked about the possibility of doing a movie together because the whole Marlins situation from Wayne Huizenga to John Henry to Jeffrey Loria, getting a new ballpark, then selling it to Derek Jeter, the World Series, signing good players, trading good players. It'd be one hell of a documentary. And I, he said that it would all be played by kids. And I said, Billy, I'll agree to do the documentary with you, except I'm going to play myself because I'm the same size as the kids who you hire but I will donate the huge salary that you pay those kids, I will donate to a charity of your choice once we are done filming. So Billy, you know how to reach me, so let's do a movie together, but while you're waiting for that, folks, go out and see Screwball. As a matter of fact, uh, you have time to see it tonight because for the first time in weeks, we have no baseball. 
Game four of the Yankees and Astros was rained out in another, why did baseball wait till noon today? Um, I've got a weather app on my phone and it's been a 100% chance of rain for four straight days and it's never wavered. And it's not like in Florida where it can rain in maybe a square mile and then be sunny across the street. This was a blanket storm that was covering the Bronx. I get why they had to wait. I just don't understand it. What's the difference between getting an understanding? It's the following. Your TV partners made you wait because this is not good for them. They didn't want a Friday night game on FS1. They didn't want Joe Buck to not get the call of the game because he's not going to get to call that game right now. They didn't want to have to move Ohio State Northwestern. They didn't want to go against SmackDown on Fox, WWE SmackDown, which we talked about yesterday, which was a critical part of the XFL TV deal. So all of the schedules for these baseball games, they're actually done purposefully. I know that certain fans get upset when their team's playing an afternoon game, but believe you me, everything that's done is done completely purposefully. Now MLB's in a situation where there's no off day, which means you're playing four games in a row if you're the Yankees and have to win in seven, and that's gonna cause a complete bullpen meltdown because the Yankees rely on that bullpen more than any other team. If I'm the Astros, I'm beginning to think about the Nats. I'm not telling my players that, but as a front office guy, I'm thinking about the Nats just a bit. I'm gonna line up my rotation, I'm gonna pitch Verlander, I'm gonna pitch Greinke, then Verlander in games four and five, and I'm gonna try to close it out. People are speculating a bullpen game in game six, but if you have a chance to win a series and go to the World Series, you're going with Cole, even on short rest, to win a game six to get yourself to the World Series. There's really no problem having a rotation that's backwards. And it's okay to admit that you're looking ahead because the Yankees are also. Executives will all tell you, no, we're very focused on the next game. The manager and the players say, we only know what we're doing right now. Come on, that's not the case. You're definitely thinking it's a chess game. If you're not thinking about four steps ahead, you've already lost the game. And that's the case when you're thinking about your rotation and the significance of this rain delay. So we just got done talking about uh, Cole, Garrett Cole. Uh, if you haven't watched him pitch and you like baseball, um, then you've watched him pitch. If you don't like baseball, but you like classical music, then watch him pitch because he is a maestro. And what I love about him is he has all of his pitches, he has command of all of them. He is able to change planes, which means that he pitches high in the zone, low in the zone. He His breaking stuff is impossible to pick up. And when you're a hitter, that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to see the spin of the ball. Barry Bonds, when he was a hitting coach for the Marlins, uh, I spent time with him and he taught me about how he would see the spin of the ball. You can't really teach that to hitters, which makes you not a good hitting coach, not his fault. But he was able with his eyesight to see what was coming to him. But with Garrett Cole, it's very difficult to see and he's been incredibly impactful. So Cole wins game three, a critical game. He hasn't lost, make sure I get this date right. He has not lost a game since May 22nd. 18-0 with a 1.66. That's earned run average, which means that if you hit a two-run home run, you're gonna win that game two to one or two to 1.6, actually. I've never seen a 1.6 run, but that's what an earned run average is. So meanwhile, Garrett Cole is shoving it up the Yankees, absolutely dominating them, except he didn't have his best stuff. He didn't have the command that has made him so great so far this season. He walked five guys. And all I could think about the entire time was actually Brian Cashman, the GM of the Yankees. Cashman's watching Cole 
and saying to himself, God damn it, we tried to get him at the deadline two years ago. We didn't get him. Now he's going to be free agent. He's going to cost tons of money, and we have no starting pitching. It's going to be another year of no World Series, and I am stuck watching Cole. I know he's thinking it. Of course, he's going to say he's not. But the reason I know he is, is that's what we do as executives. We look at the deals we didn't make. We look at the deals we do make. We regret the deals we didn't make that would have worked. We're thrilled about the deals that we didn't make that wouldn't have worked. And we always have confirmation bias. And we always have 2020 hindsight vision saying, hey, this is what happened. This is what we thought would happen. But that's not really true. If Brian Cashman knew that Cole was going to be what Cole has become and is for the Astros, of course he would have made the trade to get him when he could have, but he did not. But he's gonna get another chance, and the chance he's getting is because Cole hired a guy named Scott Boris, who I'm gonna try to mention his name and Chris Hassel's name, every name on my show. Scott Boris is an agent. Chris Hassel is an anchor for CBS Sports HQ. If you haven't watched him, you should. He's got great hair, great sleep patterns, and a great point of view on sports, all sorts of issues, great follow on Twitter. Uh, other than Iowa. If you don't like Iowa, actually don't like him because he's all Iowa. But anyway, so Garrett Cole is going to be a free agent. And uh, what's he going to get? So I sat down and I created a contract for Cole. And I thought about what I would offer and what teams should offer to get him. He's not old. He's 29 years old. And I think it's going to take seven years to get him. And it's going to take over $210 million. So he's looking at 30 million plus per year. And you have to ask yourself, is that actually worth it? Does it make sense to pay someone that amount of money? And so in order to even think about that, which all 29 teams, 30 including the Astros, are thinking about this, the procedure is as such. You go to your owner and you get what your payroll is. Not just this year, but what your owner's view is of payroll over the next several years. Because if you're signing a player to a seven-year deal for $30 million a year, you have to know that you have enough payroll flexibility to build a team around him. Otherwise, you're the Angels with Mike Trout, a great team, a great player on a mediocre team. So first, you have to make sure you have the payroll ready to go. Then you have to realize how Scott Boris negotiates. He only deals with owners. So if you're the GM, you go to your owner and you tell your owner to shut his phone off. S-H-P-O. We said that to our owner every single year. Shut the phone off. Don't take the calls. Don't take the bait. We'll be the ones to negotiate with you, with Scott Boris, not you. Because as an owner, you're gonna give, and we don't wanna give. And the second thing you have to be willing to do is W-A-I-T, wait. You have to wait for the market to present itself. Don't make the market the way the Nationals did with Rendon by offering him $215 million over seven or what they did with Harper. Lucky enough, they let Harper go, thank God. What will happen with Rendon, who knows? So Garrett Cole, Dodgers, pair him up with Bueller after they lose Ryu as a free agent and Kershaw, who's now a number three, four, the Dodgers may make a move. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, aforementioned, why was it so important to talk about the Tyler Skaggs issue? Full circle here, folks, on nothing personal, because if they've got to pay Skaggs' family immediately, they may not have the capacity to take on Garrett Cole. That is a straight wait to see. Will he get over $200 million? 
That's a way to see, and my answer is yes. Every day we're gonna have a new way to see, we're gonna follow it. My way to see yesterday was the rain out. They should have called it yesterday. I said they will call it, wait to see, one nothing me. Will Garrett Cole sign a $200 million plus deal this off season? Wait to see. The answer is someone is gonna give because starting pitching gets you jewelry. It may not look like it during the regular season when home runs are flying, but trust me, we're watching it happen and we talk about it every day on HQ, CBS Sports HQ. We're streaming and we're always around. Pitching and defense will win rings. So, at the end of each show, I give you a pick of the day. We have started Nothing Personal. This is episode three. I'm happy to say I'm 0-2 because I went with the cards and then I went with the cards. How could the cards have gotten swept? The good news is I can't go with the cards. The better news is there's a rainout, which means I'm taking the night off. I'm not gonna give you a pick. I think Troy is playing. I think there's some other games, and if I don't have a really good feeling, I'm not just gonna give you a pick for giving you a pick. When I give you a pick, it's gonna win, unless you're the St. Louis Cardinals who have completely ruined my record. So I'm two games under 500, but one night off, we are back at it because nothing personal is always Monday through Friday, and we are 45 minutes of entertainment, sports, and we're gonna give you information and stories, but you have to remember something, please. It's just business. It's nothing personal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.